to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. I'm happy to say, after literally years of trying to get him on the podcast, Kieran McGuire from The Price of Football is on the show. Ironically, he was just in the States last week to see Brighton play Chelsea in Philadelphia. That's one of the things we're going to talk about on the pod, including numerous differences between American sports and English sports, and especially in terms of football, in terms of salary, fan culture. Uh, then we're going to talk about Kieran's other main interest, which is music, specifically uh, 70s and 80s music, which is also something I'm interested in. So we're going to talk about some of his favorite bands that he's seen live over the years that I've also had the fortune of seeing in the States a couple times. And then we're going to end it with some video game talk. We learned on Kevin Day's pod that he does with Kieran that both of them are big fans of playing Zelda, including the new Tears of the Kingdom game. So we're going to talk about how he's found it so far compared to Breath of the Wild. And is he a slow player, a fast player, a meticulous player? And things like that. Uh, we hope to have Kevin to do an interview that we are going to package together in one episode. Unfortunately, schedules didn't line up. So we're going to go ahead and release Kieran's portion of the show now. And we will do Kevin's pod when we are able to get it done. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. back to the Winter Palace. Even though our guest was just a few miles away from here last week, he's now back across the pond, so this is a late night recording for one of us and an early recording for the other. Although he's one of the leading football finance experts online, our goal today is to talk about a load of other stuff that doesn't include things like amortization and sports washing. So here from the Price of Football podcast, it's Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. How are you doing this morning, Kieran? For you, I'm I'm all good, Mark. My main focus today is is on the sport of cricket, which I appreciate is uh, quite alien to an awful lot of people, including most of the people of the UK. But uh, we're we're up against our huge enemy in the shape of Australia, um, and uh, yeah, things are tense. Well, I uh, I said the other day when the four I guess the fourth test was washed out and they retained the ashes. I said I couldn't think of a more anticlimactic way to win a trophy than being in the middle of a rain delay and having the game called off and somebody wins and loses a trophy. That's about right. Yeah, but cricket is spectacularly dumb um it's, it's a dumb sport to begin with yeah you, you what, what other sport can you can you play for five days and still have no result e- even if the weather's good um but but we anybody that that loves the game has has this huge affection I, I've, I've played it for uh for many many years and, and i've watched it practically my whole life i have made attempts over the years to try and sort of assimilate my baseball knowledge into putting it over a cricket-sized template. And some things I understand, some things I don't. Some things are just so quintessentially English that you just sort of roll with the with the flow. And it's – but I mean, it's like I know British friends that have come over here and tried to watch baseball, and it's like the most boring thing in the world for them. And I'm like – so you can watch cricket for five days, yet like one baseball game is too much, and they're like, "Yes," and I'm like, "It's just one of the differences between us." <laughs> but speaking of seeing sports in the United States, you were just here and got to see Brighton play in this uh, 
cocked up preseason Premier League thing that they're doing this year. I guess they decided that Charlie Stilatano had made enough money from the preseason American tours, and they decided to just do it themselves. Although, admittedly, with only, I guess, four, five, six teams, and not necessarily all of the marquee teams. Yes, uh, the Premier League is is keen to ride on the coattails of the additional interest. I mean, there's already interest in soccer, as we know, but the additional interest in the game following the success of Welcome to Wrexham, following the intrigue generated by Ted Lasso. Um, America is probably now the, the the biggest international market for the Premier League in terms of TV rights with, with the signing of the New Deal. Um, <clears throat> so an opportunity to, to showcase uh, some of the teams, perhaps some of the teams which are, are a little, a little bit well, less well known. Although I think Chelsea had a had a pretty big following, um, with a view to uh, establishing relationships and demonstrating what a great game football is uh, in in terms of a the athleticism, the the technique, the tactical nous of the game. Uh, on top of that, the adrenaline rush that you get. At times, uh, and, and I'm speaking as somebody that's followed a team for you know, 50 years up and down the country. For 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 a Brighton fan, the chance to play in the United States is is beyond all expectation or belief that I've ever had uh, since I started watching them in 1973. How did you find, even though admittedly it was preseason and so not very intense? How did you find the football going experience in watching in an NFL stadium in Philadelphia? Um, it's it's difficult to put that into an articulate framework in in the sense that everybody was incredibly nice and friendly when they started doing the Mexican wave halfway through the game. I I was a little bit taken aback because football is for a fan, for a legacy fan, and that's what I am. Football is a very intense experience, and, and the idea of being distracted for for any way, shape, or form to me is a little bit alien. But I fully understand that many people, especially uh, you know fans in the states, it was the first opportunity they'd had to see. Uh, Chelsea and the vast majority of the fans there were were Chelsea fans due to the Pulisic uh, issue uh, when, he, when he was playing with them up until uh, very recently. Um, and, of, and of course, I don't know if you're familiar with the geography, but Pulisic would have been from uh, about only an hour and a half away from Philadelphia. So he so not only would would he be like you know he's um, like Americans golden's current American golden boy probably still but he he would also have been local for Philadelphia because Hershey isn't that far away from Philadelphia ah right I, I wasn't aware of that but that that does explain uh, a lot of the shirts with with his name on I mean to be fair there there are lots of other Chelsea shirts as well, there as well um <clears throat> so yeah it, it was it was great everybody was so friendly um there was none of the the hostility that you you get at an English match, yeah, you know, the fact that the fans were intermingling would be unheard of on on this side of the pond because it is a very tribal affair watching football. So yeah, it was it was enjoyable. I, th- I think the thing which took me back most of all was having to go and pay twenty seven dollars for a burger and fries. Um, the, the cost of uh, the cost of food and drink inside the stadium was. Uh, Astronomic, and, and I'm used to paying what we consider to be high prices in the UK. Definitely, concessions are. I mean, especially in the sort of more recent economic times. But even, you know, growing up when I would go to baseball or hockey or whichever, you know, you're always still paying, you know, above mark. You know, you're still paying. You know, $5 for a souvenir soda if you want the plastic cup, you know, with the logo on it or whatever, or $5 for a hamburger. And I guess it probably, I haven't been to the Eagles football stadium, so I don't know what sort of local cuisine they would have in 
Lincoln Financial, like whether they would have a place inside the stadium that has cheesesteaks, which is a Philadelphia, which is something Philadelphia is known for. I don't know. I assume this is probably true for English stadiums, maybe depending on like the variety of pie you might serve, depending on where you are in the country. But, you know, like I'm halfway between Baltimore and Philadelphia and Baltimore is famous for its seafood. So if you go to the Ravens football stadium or the Orioles baseball stadium, you'll get crab cakes, which is something Maryland's known for. And if you go to Boston, they'll have new, you know, like New England clam chowder or whatever, among other things. And if you go to San Francisco, they'll have sushi and they'll have sushi in Seattle and they'll have, you know, barbecue in Kansas City and Texas and things like that. So, yeah, I don't, I haven't, I haven't been to a Phillies game in a long time and I've never been to an Eagles game in that stadium. So I don't know what they have there, but I mean, that's, but you know, I'm sure you, you know, sports here is very regional. I mean, not necessarily as tribal as it is for you in England. I, I've always said the closest thing, and you may, you can maybe relate to this, uh, given some of the teaching that you've done here, that the closest thing I think here to football tribalism is college sports, which I know yeah. really isn't, is, which isn't a thing in England, but, you know, it's, th- because there's because professional teams are so spread out that and the ones that are close to each other don't always play each other like the Yankees and the Mets both are in New York but they're in different leagues so they only play each other a couple times a season but you have New York and Boston who have a rivalry who are fairly close but colleges where you have you know these big giant behemoth money making programs especially and you're in like a rural state like Alabama, and you've got Alabama and Auburn who are like two of your traditional college football powers, and they're, you know, an hour apart from each other. Some of them are even closer than that. Some of them are in the same city. So it's it's almost like that's the closest I think that we get to the kind of vitriol that you get there. Yeah, that that probably sounds about right. I mean. Yeah, England's a very small country. I've watched Brighton play in 117 different grounds against yeah, many, many opponents. And it's it's an opportunity to develop rivalries and grudges. And football fans are a very strange bunch. They have ridiculously long memories and they, they take offence and slight at the at the smallest of things. And, and that that then that then tends to snowball and becomes an issue. And, and it- and it's funny that you and Kevin have ended up doing a podcast together where your two your two teams are have a, have a very odd quasi geographical rivalry but it's not really about the geography it's more about incidents i guess is fair to say over the years that that's right uh what I mean the, when when Kevin and I first came together because i was convinced the uh, podcast was going to be a spectacular failure. I thought, well, it will be cancelled within three or four shows. And therefore, there's no point in me actually revealing that I support the side that he hates. And he, I already knew who he supported because he's, you know, Kevin's quite high profile here in the UK. He's a, a former sort of presenter on Match of the Day, which is one of the, well, which is the definitive uh, soccer highlight show uh, in, in the country, certainly throughout my lifetime. Um, so I, I just kept it quiet. Uh, but Brighton and Crystal Palace, we we loathe each other. Um, we loathe each other as institutions because I've got lots of mates who support Palace and, and you know vice versa. And we've always said that on an individual basis, we we like the bands. We hate we hate each other's teams. Um, <clears throat> there has been some very violent episodes uh, between fan groups historically. But even that seems to have mellowed a little bit in in the past, probably three to four years. Um, I think partly due to the fact that for for reasons which we've got no idea about, the the show that we do has proved to be quite popular. So I've turned up at Palace events and given talks with Kevin and 
it's, it's like everything else. You know, you, you, if, if you take a look at what happened here in, in Northern Ireland between the Catholics and the Protestants, when you actually get them in a room together and you get them talking about something about which they, they both have a common interest, we find in life that what binds us together is far greater than keeps us apart. And it's the unpleasant politicians and opportunists in life that try to focus on the things that keep us apart to to create uh, you know, hostilities, which probably are never warranted in the first place. It's funny. I told Kevin the first time he was on the show that that I had actually seen Crystal Palace play with an asterisk because I because I saw Crystal Palace USA play because they were. Uh, headquartered in like the Maryland suburbs, so they're they're really not all that far away from me, relatively speaking. So I think I think it was like probably like 15 years ago by now, or maybe longer, when they had that team here. I think that was during the reign of the owner that Kevin doesn't like to talk about and who I don't like to listen to on the radio. I think my, it was my, on, friend, my friend Simon <laughs> on a regular basis. It my love of Danny Kelly. Uh, shows that I suffered through him doing like three years of radio with Simon Jordan that, that I, I somehow managed to stomach it. And I was so happy when he became quote unquote big enough to graduate from being mentored by Danny to have his own show that I didn't have to listen to him anymore. And I have nothing against Jim White, but no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. All, all, all I can say is that he's exactly the same. It's not an act. He's exactly I, the same. I I can um, I mean it's not like we have had you know we've had our fair share of um you know from George Steinbrenner on down you know we've certainly had the kind of owners that uh, are are in his mold and unfortunately you are now getting more and more of them in the Premier League as they buy more and more teams you know some some successful, some not successful. I guess depending on if we're talking about financially or on the on the pitch. You know, certainly, certainly the Glazers have made plenty of money off owning Manchester United. Mm. We you know, even though it's at a you know, it's come with a handful of minor trophies, I think, and probably nothing more than that. At least since uh, Alex Ferguson retired. Yeah, that, that is the case. Uh, perhaps we need some form of independent regulator to save the game from owners who don't actually love football and whose interests are self-orientated rather than those for the benefit of the game. But I don't know whether that idea will get any traction over here. It is funny that I believe I jokingly sent an email about this uh, a long time ago, and I think it seems like over time you've you've actually gotten more serious questions about the whole how many American owners in the Premier League would it take to radically alter the structure of the competition, which I sort of sent as a joke. I, you know, I sort of said, you know, we're only three American owners away from voting away regu- relegation and promotion, but I think there are conspiracy theorist football fans, and I can't really blame them given the history of the way they've been treated. Who think that like that might be a realistic possibility? Um, well, certainly it was part of the proposals uh, in Project Big Picture, which was created by the Glazers, John Henry and Rick Parry over here to s- stop what we what we've had as three up, three down uh, to introduce some sort of playoffs, which would enable at least one club uh, in the Premier League to avoid relegation. You can sit from a business point of view, relegation is is a horrible concept because in any form of business, you want certainty. And if you have at the start, this could reply to any business, at the start of your financial year, if you have realistically a 25 to 30 percent chance of losing your biggest income stream, um, you wouldn't want that and you would want to take steps to try to mitigate that. So I fully understand the approach which has been taken by these people to uh, ring fence football um, and to create more of a, a franchise style system where you've got guaranteed revenues. 
and you've got a, a more concentrated competition which can allow you to do more lucrative things such as such as the pre-season tours. Man- Manchester United made fifteen million pounds, which is what twenty million bucks from from pre-season uh, recently. So I understand where they're coming from, but they're not coming from a love of football. What's funny is I've long thought. Although we don't have it in Major League Soccer, and we didn't have it when I was growing up in the NASL, the way that Major League Soccer has expanded, I've long thought, and I don't know how realistic this is, because they're up, I don't know if they've gotten to 30 teams yet, but they're probably close to it now, which is right away where all the other major sports are here, you know, it's 28-30-30. You know, football, of course, has a – the NFL has a magic 32, which is one of those nicely divisible magic numbers. So you can have four divisions of eight, eight divisions of four, and the playoffs all work out wonderfully. I've long thought that eventually Major League Soccer is going to expand to the point of maybe like 36 – or 40 franchises, and they'll actually just make MLS 1 and MLS 2. Where you, you, where you may have intra-sport relegation and promotion, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because it's, it's, still a clo- it's, it's still a closed shop. Like the teams that are in part of, I think it's still called the USL, which, is, which would be like minor league soccer here. So... Sort of like being the championship or Division One or League One, but if you had forty teams and you had in and of itself two leagues of twenty, you know that you could somehow break it up. But again, it's you know who wants to own a second to your franchise. So I don't, I don't know if it will actually happen, but I can see the logic of how it could happen in the future because. You know, for the past 10 years, they keep saying, we have enough franchises, we don't want to overexpand, we learn the lesson of the North American Soccer League, but yet, given the expansion fees are, I think, like $300, $400 million or something like that now, that, you know, they're not going to turn away that money, so they just keep making more and more teams, and they're starting to put them in what I would call lesser markets in the United States. Like, I mean, Portland has been a big success uh, in the men's and women's team because it's a place that sort of gravitated toward football as a very liberal city that I think adopted, and they didn't have it, some a lot of the other sports. But, you know, they're starting to put teams in, like, Louisville or I think maybe New Orleans now. So they're starting to get to what you may call, like, the second-tier American cities with no disrespect intended just by sort of population and economic power. So I could see them wanting to have a thing where the sort of second-level teams had a – cities had a team but weren't necessarily in the same league with New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago. Yeah, I I can see see that. I think what we don't get is – Relegation is ridiculously exciting. I I agree. Although the last two seasons for me, uh, as a team who supports the team in blue where you teach, uh, have not been great. That's one of the reasons I jokingly said I don't really want to talk about football finance. Is it's so very depressing, and I do not want to talk about anything having to do with my team, as I think you can well imagine. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But at least you had some skin in the game going into those last two or three matches and tension and misery are part of what makes football great you know if you finish the bottom of of the NFL you go okay that wasn't great but there there's no there's no sense of loss uh, if if you talk to fans of Leicester Leeds Southampton all of all of whom were you know they're pretty significant significant teams um, it, it's like it's like a, a loss of a, a a family member, not not a close family member, but a minor family member. Um, 
and there is you know, there are there are grown men crying, which I find absolutely ridiculous. Um, but we have become a nation of bedwetters here in the UK, and uh, it is uh, a very strange sight to see the reaction of of people. But at the same time, it is incredibly in, it's, it's often more exciting than watching who's going to win. Uh, you yeah, know, the, the Premier League was sewn up this season with, with three or four matches to go. And you know, Manchester City certainly won because Arsenal blew up. And that was entertaining in its own right. Uh, sad, of course, for Arsenal fans. But at the other end of the table, it, it went to the wire. And that, uh, that, that was what was keeping people interested in football. And that means that there's, there's no dead rubbers. Which, which is which is great for the game in, in terms of attracting fans from from the broadcaster's point of view. It's great as well because it's uh, it's good for viewing figures. The odd thing, and this is again something that's very sort of foreign to the nature of your sports, is oddly now, probably within the last ten or fifteen years, there's now this thing where if your team is going to be bad. You want them to be as bad as possible so you get the best draft pick. Mm. So probably for the last at least 10, maybe longer, you've occasionally had times when there's been a very, very uh, highly touted prospect who's coming through college or maybe high school if you're talking about basketball or, or hockey coming from junior hockey, where teams people will start rooting for their team to lose so they can – get the best draft pick and turn around because, you know, American sports is based on nobody is good forever and nobody is bad forever. And as I'm sure you probably know from studying some American sports, in a way for owners, it's actually better for their bottom line to lose. And especially now that we have revenue sharing in most of the sports, that it's almost better for them to be just good enough to have people come to the park or the or the stadium or the rink to stay competitive so that people will still come to watch them. But if they become too good, then it costs them more money because they have to start paying players more and playing, you know, postseason bonuses or things like that. So you know, you historically have a team like in baseball, like Pittsburgh or Oakland, who, who every so often are good, but do it on the cheap because they get revenue sharing. And, you know, and then when you start talking about the cap sports, where you've got a floor and a ceiling, so that owners know they're only, I think, like when we had the last strike, I think like the last basketball strike was because and the strike before the players had gotten something like 57% of the gross, which the owners realized was a horrible mistake. So they had the last lockout or strike so that they're back down either close to 50 or under 50. So I'm, as you said, in a business, being a sports owner in the United States is all about cost certainty. And yeah. if you're in a, if you're in a league that has a cap and a floor, you know you're not going to – I mean, yes, there's weird things like luxury taxes and things like that, but you know you're not going to spend more than 90% of your gross and your and you can't spend – and you have to spend, say, 75%. So you're still going to make money no matter what you do. And I thought this is funny. This is something that came up on your show the other day that I emailed you about. Somebody asked about American salaries being public. And how, it, again, that's another cultural thing about how, you know, British people are much more reserved, especially about things like salary and things like that. Whereas here, A, people are, you know, vainglorious often sometimes about their salary, especially if it's a lot of money. But it's also the fact that the salaries are actually printed or made public by the unions mm. because they want everybody to know what everybody is making. So that you can't be, you know, because we have a history here, much like in England, where, you know, when players didn't know what each other's made, the owners would lowball them because they didn't know. But now that everything is public, 
it's certainly a lot better. And of course, you know, this is an issue you have in football with agents, and agents are much more closely regulated here, where you know you are only going to get a fixed percentage, and you're not going to get, you know, George Mendez or people like that. You know, like the concept of an agent making money from the selling team, a buying team, and the player is so amazingly foreign to like an American sports fan. As you might imagine. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty alien to most people in English football and, and European football as well. Um, what's, and my, my initial attitude towards that was, was probably the same as yours, one of incredulity and also a bit of hostility. Um, and, and then I spoke to some chief executives of clubs and say, you know, how, how does this work? And they said, uh, Paradoxically, it, it, it can work. Uh, the, the aim of the agent is, is to be an intermediary. And that's what they, that, that, that's, that's the strange word that they have been called in recent years. Although I think it's now gone back to agents. Um, and it's to smooth the waters. Uh, it, it can lead to some very weird situations. And I think the, the classic one is, is that of Paul Pogba wanting to move from Juventus to Manchester United, Juventus wanting to sell him, Manchester United wanting to buy him. So you've got all three ducks lined up in a row. And the agent ended up making around about 50 million bucks on that particular deal. But but that is that that is an outlier. Um, so you would normally expect an agent to be trying to do the best for one of the parties rather than all of the parties. Um and agents here have been painted as the villains of football, uh, which is, is is classic distractor tactics by FIFA. Anything which takes the heat off FIFA itself, um, they're more than happy to, to go down that particular route. So, yeah, I, it, it, is, it is a strange one uh, in respect of wages. Um, it, players don't even tell each other their wages. Yeah, and, that, and that's, that's, again, you say all part of... Um, uh, one of the big problems in, in this country, which is which is the reserve of the English. Uh, we we are a, a, we're a, we're a strange bunch over here. Well, we had, initially I had planned for us to not discuss football, and we've now spent most of the time talking about. It. So I want to make sure I get to some of our non-football topics before we go. You and it, uh, you are a. Uh, if you're not as big a football fan, you certainly are as close to being a music fan, especially uh, music that I would listen to growing up, too, so, although you are slightly older than I am. But uh, I just wanted to talk about your love of 1980s, uh, what I would call New Wave or the Second British Invasion or whatever topic you would like to use. That's certainly... Uh, what I listen to more of now than anything, even though oddly, when I was a teenager, I listened to more classic rock, and I did not start listening to this kind of stuff until I got to college in the late 80s. So I guess, talk to me about your love of people like The Smiths and New Order, and probably my favorite, OMD. Um, I've always had a, a love for music and, and the biggest regret in my life is that I've never learned to play a musical instrument. I, I know that I can't sing, but uh, I, I bitterly am uh, annoyed with myself for not plucking up the courage and putting in the hours to learn to play the guitar. I, I just find music transformational. I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly solitary person. I, I, I have no social life as such apart from going to football and going to music. Now, if I go with a friend, that, that's fine. I'm equally happy going to going to a gig by myself. And I think a lot of people find that quite strange. Um, I, I, I have done the same thing, so I am certainly not one to cast aspersions on that. Splendid. Um, I, I love I love what music can do. It, it, listening to to the words of somebody, especially as you say, you know, I. 
I'm I'm in my 60s, uh, but growing up late 70s and early 80s in in that adolescent period where you're you've got issues to do with your your own identity, your own sexuality, and and all of this, and you do feel very isolated. And then you you hear somebody who can articulate those feelings and, and those. Uh, those worries and anxieties that you have. So, so whether it was, um, sort of on a macro level, we had, we had bands such as the jam who effect for a, for a period of time that, that band was the opposition to the UK government because they were able to, to express the frustrations of growing up in, in a sort of a blue collar environment. And then the majesty of Ian Curtis with, uh, Joy Division. And, and whilst now I've, I'm, I'm hugely conflicted about the Smiths because Morrissey has turned out to be a complete arse uh, with regards to some of his more right wing views that I don't uh, well, have any any truck with um, the their ability to to put into three or four minutes. Uh, domestic soap operas, the, the, the feelings of going out on, on a Friday or Saturday night and coming home alone and self-loathing, um, and so on. Uh, absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, and I saw OMD at, uh, what's at a venue called the Royal Albert Hall just over a year ago. And that is a, that is a classic venue here in the UK, which is normally associated with, um, uh, orchestras and uh, opera and so on. But it was an absolutely amazing experience because the acoustics at the venue are incredible. So, I, actually, I got to see OMD the only time, actually. I got to see them either last year or the year before in Philadelphia, as it were. Yeah. So, so that was, I mean, if I were to rank sort of my, the bands that I like, all sort of are in that that new wave synth pop category, probably you know OMD, New Order, people like that. Um, yeah, getting to see them live was was just amazing. And so, like I said, I didn't initially listen to like that style of music until like the late '80s. Like I I was listening more to you know like. Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, The Who, The Kinks, stuff when I was when I was like in my teenage years because I live in the middle of the country. And so while, you know, I could get radio stations from Philadelphia and Baltimore and if I was lucky New York, you know, I didn't necessarily wasn't exposed to like the alternative culture. I just sort of knew classic rock and that's what I listened to. And so it wasn't until I got to college and had college radio and started meeting more, a more diverse people that it was like, oh, hey, you know, here's the Talking Heads and here's the Smiths and here's New Order and all, all the other people that I had, like, just missed. I mean, yeah. I'm, you're still formative when you're, a t- especially when you go away to college. You know, you're, you know, that's really more when you try and find yourself than when you're still living at home with your parents. So yeah, so that yeah, that's when I found all of that stuff, and then, uh, you know, like sort of the more British influenced ska and reggae and stuff like that, like Madness and the Specials and people like that. You know that obviously I never would have heard of growing up in like rural Maryland. Yeah, that, that's that's fully understandable. I, I guess that's the advantage of being a small country in in that news travels very fast. Uh, over here in the UK, and and we were sort of we, we're quite blessed in a way that we had a we got a certainly in the in that era, yeah, late seventies, early eighties, we had a very uh, very aggressive and very enthusiastic music press. So they, they, I I used to buy. Uh, you, you mentioned Danny Kelly earlier. Well, Danny Kelly used to be the the, the editor of the New Musical Express, which was for me the definitive. Music Weekly, and you'd read it. You'd get, you'd buy it on a Thursday, and one of their uh, one of their correspondents had been to see a new band, and, and therefore you tried to check them out. And we also were incredibly lucky to have a, a, a DJ here in the UK called John Peel, right. who he, he used to have a show uh, between 10 p.m. and midnight um, on 
the on Radio One, which is sort of the, the nation's pop channel. But they they thought that nobody's interested in listening to pop uh, at that time of night. And they gave it to this sort of rather gruff individual. But he showcased all of these new bands and you would listen to Peel. And then the following day in school, you'd say, did you hear that band? You know, and if he really liked a song, he'd play it twice. Um, and people would travel down to London with, you know, C60s and C90s and demo tapes and give them to him. And he was very, very uh, gracious in terms of the amount of time he spent listening to, to new music and, and giving bands the opportunities. And then because it's a small country and bands would be touring, you would get the chance to see them either where I was growing up in Brighton, but we're only we're only 50 miles from London. So you know, I, I spent a lot of time just watching bands. And, and what, the reason I went to Manchester University was that the Manchester music scene was very up and coming. And I'd fallen in love with some of the bands. And that was the driving force for me to, to go to university in Manchester. I had I had other opportunities for perhaps slightly more prestigious universities. But for me, I, I'm, I was driven by music and you know, my, my favourite band well, my favourite two bands are The Cure, which I think everybody's heard of. And I, I believe that and I know that they've toured the States this year, but I've, I've read every single review of them. And it appears that it's the hottest ticket in town to see a 64 year old bloke with smudged lipstick. You know, how how crazy is that? Um, I, I saw them play in London uh, in December. Absolutely amazing. I, I live about five miles away from Robert Smith. So I often cycle through his village in the hope that I'll find him down at the local grocery store buying some bread. But he's actually a bit of a recluse. So there's no such luck. And um, um, my other favourite band is a band called The Chameleons, who I suspect most American uh, fans won't have heard of. But they are a classic uh, Manchester band, absolutely huge in Manchester. They do an annual uh, Christmas uh, concert a couple of concerts and they sell out still in in Manchester and the tickets go immediately and they've not put a record out a serious record out since probably 1986 um but they are still one of our bands and when I talk about our I mean sort of a, a Manchester band as well as the, the more well-known bands such as yeah, the Smiths and New Order again who, which are from Manchester I don't know if it's st- I think it's on YouTube, I think, but for people who don't know who John Peel was, I think there was a documentary they made about John Peel and the undertones in Teenage Kicks that I think was a BBC documentary that I think has been on YouTube. So if people don't want to know more about him, I would definitely say try and find that because it's a that that whole thing with John Peel and the undertones is like such a fascinating story that people don't know about. I won't say any more, but uh, it's definitely worth checking out. The one thing before we before we let you go, we talked about your love of music. We talked about your love of football. I was pleasantly surprised out of the blue when I heard you and Kevin uh, talk earlier in the summer about how excited you were to play the new Zelda game. Oh, yeah. Which was just funny because, again, you know, nerds are nerds, and we all like the same things. But uh, – how have you found, I guess I'll just ask, how have you found Tears of the Kingdom overall? How far have you gotten in it? Um, I, 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 it's my late night relaxation. Every night I, I say to my wife, the Baroness, uh, she, she watches Love Island, which I cannot stand. Um, so I say, yeah, usual, which means her watching Love Island and me going up to play on Zelda for an hour or two. I'm, I'm very, very slow. Um, I'm, I'm not one of these people that have to complete a game early. It's it's brilliant. It is so refreshing in, uh, in in a gaming environment which is so fast paced, so hostile that you just you've got this ridiculously large sandbox, and it's it's amazingly surreal in terms of the different tasks that you get asked to do. Um, the the interaction with other characters as well, the the nature of the puzzles. Um, I, I, I love it to bits. I mean, Breath of the Wild was off the scale in terms of how good it was. This is Breath of the Wild too. So the 
the wow factor isn't there because it's it's really a sequel. Um, it's a very good sequel, in my view. I know that I've read some reviews of people who have been sniffy about it, but they would have been sniffy about it regardless because they wanted to be controversial. Um, yeah, a, a great game. I've, I've only scratched the surface and yet I've been playing playing on it for three months and it, it's going to take me uh, another year before I complete it. And being being an old nerd, yeah, I've I've got the patience to do so. There's no there's no urgency on my behalf because I'd I'd rather just sit back and enjoy it, um, than anything else. So, yeah, for me, it's a you know it's it's a nine point five out of ten. I think if I were to look, I don't have my switch handy, but I think I must have put in like two hundred hours on Breath of the Wild because. I'm especially for sandbox games like that. I'm very meticulous and want to get every item and search every nook and cranny. And the fact that you, you know, it also makes you overpowered by the time you get to the bosses doesn't hurt. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of doing that with this too. It's funny that you say that because um I'm friends with the guy who runs Game Explain, which is a online video review place. And He's one of those people who has kind of been lukewarm on Tears of the Kingdom, mainly because I, while admiring it sort of technically, just that it, it's that weird, it doesn't know whether it's like just a sequel or there's just enough different. And then did what they do, did they what, did what they make differently, did that really improve over Breath of the Wild. I I'm still I'm in the camp of I still think it's very good. I don't think it's like as transformative as Breath of the Wild is because of course it can't because it's a sequel mm. and it's built on very much of the same engine. You know, other than you know you've got different skills now and you know you can go down a whole rabbit hole of watching videos of people building those things. You know, building these elaborate cars and flying machines and all that kind of stuff, which. It's almost like they knew people were going to do that, but it's almost become a subgenre of the game itself. That people, some people are more interested in building all of these devices than not, not necessarily actually playing the story. But it's the kind of thing where when you're an artist and you release your thing into the wild, you don't have a control over how people, what people do with it. So if they want to play it as fast as they can and finish in a day, if you could, you can do that, or it could be like you and me and take a couple hundred hours to finish it. It's like, you know, if you're Sony, you're just like, here's the game, do with it as you will. Yeah, it, it's it's something for me. It's something for for anyone and everyone, um, and and it is a sequel. So as you as you rightly said, you cannot have the. I remember when I first saw the you know, the, the nature of the cell shading and so on, and, and I'm. And I'm, you know, I'm, I've got no color vision, so I, I don't see the world in in the same rainbow as as many other people. But I, I thought it was I thought it was initially entertaining, and then as you get drawn into the game, um, and you have to you have to use your brain as opposed to just loading up on bullets, and and that's that's what has sort of turned me off a, a lot of games. It's it's just a case of uh, you know grinding your way to 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 success um it's for for me it's 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 exactly what i was expecting and it was exactly what i was not expecting in the sense that as you rightly said you can go off into your own environment of creativity and i think that's that's something you've got to give uh nintendo a lot of credit for because they've made it so flexible that it means that individual players can have such a unique experience um you know the fusion and the ultra hand and the ascend i think those those new powers uh really are superb in in the extra dimension that they've given you at the same time you know it's it's quite clear where its roots are in terms of breath of the wild definitely so karen i'm glad we finally were able to sync our schedules up um to do this, I know I'm going to try and do something with Kevin soon, so I don't know if this is going to be packaged with his part of the episode and released together. I have a feeling I probably just am going to release this 
as its own because uh, as busy as you are, Kevin is equally busy with all of his various projects, uh, including the podcast, but you two also have a book coming out. I know it's not due for a month or two, but why don't you give us just a quick uh, preview of what that's going to be? Um, yes, this, this, this is, the, again, a book, a book which should never have been written from people that are on a podcast, which by rights shouldn't exist. Um, Kev, Kevin is a brilliant writer and I'm a nerd. Um, so we, we've written this book, which is called Unfit and Improper Persons, and it's a fictional account of myself and Kevin sort of responding to some of the criticism that's, that's leveled at us. And, and I absolutely understand you know, the nature of the people that are making that criticism is you spend all of your time moaning about the way that people run a football club. How would you get on if you tried it yourself? So we said, well, we, we there's 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 two reasons why we've not tried it ourselves. A, we're too old and B, we're not rich. Um, so therefore, we've created a a fictional account of Kevin and I uh, acquiring or setting up a a side which starts in park football uh, here in the UK and how we travel our way through uh, eventually to the Premier League and the Champions League. Um, Ke- Kevin is a very, very funny guy. I mean, if people are not familiar with him, Kevin, Kevin is a, a, a very well-known comedy writer here in the UK and he's done a lot of stand-up work himself and so on. Um, so he, he knows how to make words flow and, and I'm sort of there in, in the background providing all of the, the financial narrative to what would happen if you get promoted from A to B, what happens when you buy a stadium, uh, all, all, all of the dull bits of the pages that people will probably skip. Um, because it's quite, it's quite, it's quite easy to see you know, where, where my influence is in as far as the book is concerned. But yes, we, we, we were very, uh, very surprised that, well, I was very surprised that uh, Bloomsbury, who are the uh, people behind uh, the Harry Potter books, the publisher there, um, they they asked us to write it. Uh, yeah, I, I've written a, a textbook, uh, an academic textbook on football finance, which which again, there's no reason why anybody would want to buy it. But it but it for a while here in the UK, it was the number one selling sports book, which really confused me because it's it's not a sports book; it's a finance book with a with a, with a soccer ball on the front of it. Um, but yeah, we're, we're looking forward. It comes out on October. The twelfth, um, we will be uh, we will be touring uh, the book and the podcast here in the UK. We're, we're hoping to uh, to come overseas. I know we've been invited to Ireland and to the Channel Islands here, but uh, I know somebody has said, "Why not come across to the States and do a gig?" And about seven or eight percent of our audience is, is based in the US, so it, it's something we'd certainly love to do. Uh, whether whether we could organise ourselves uh, because. Both Kevin and I are the, those type of guys that are spectacularly disorganized. Um, whether that will ever come to fruition, we'll have to wait and see. Well, I'll definitely be looking forward to it. I mean, I definitely enjoyed The Price of Football book. And I, Kevin's book uh, is very, very funny. It's basically it – yes. uh, people can go back and listen to the pod where we talked about it. But it's basically um, him coming up with a reason to dislike all 92 football clubs. and. And from a humorous vein, um, oh, yes. some more serious, some lighthearted. And I'm sure like, and now it's probably funny. That's probably a book you, I guess you could update every year since the 92 always changes with, you know, with slightly, uh, you know, every couple of new teams here and there. But yeah, it's, uh, who are you if for people who want to listen to that? And for, for those like me whose eyes are starting to suffer, they're also both available on audio. Uh, Kevin reading his book is probably funnier than actually reading it too. Yeah, as as you might imagine. So, and uh, the price of football comes out every uh, twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, Monday is the questions pod. Although I'm sure this week you'll be flooded with news since you guys were on a break where you had some shows in the can. I'm I'm certainly a I'm sure a certain uh. French superstar and uh, how much money he'll be getting next season will probably be topic number one, I might imagine. 
But uh, so people can listen to that and look for that book soon. Kieran, I want to thank you once again. We'll definitely need to get you back on maybe when the book comes out. We only scratched the surface on what we could talk about. Like I said, I had a lot more pop culture stuff that I was more eager to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah, I, I love talking music, yeah. Yeah, I, I figured it would be a nice, refreshing change for you to not to have to talk about anything you read on Company's House for once. Yes. But we did get some of it in there, so thanks a lot. Um, I know that, uh, like you said, it's early in the morning for you, and I know you have a four-footed friend who is probably desperate to take his walk right about now. Uh, that the, I guess the third member of the podcast, uh, no offense to Smudge or the Baroness, but Finley, I assume, is like the third the third member of the pod on air. He he is yes. Um, I I have a dog who's uh, uh, one of his talents, and he's he's he is he is man's best friend. He's an absolutely fantastic companion. Uh, is that he can open doors? So uh, normally we record the Price of Football podcast at around about ten a.m. on a Sunday morning, and my wife, uh, who is known as the Baroness, because uh, I used to be known as the Baron in my uh, in, in my cricket club, mainly because in my youth I used to run a sex shop. Well, not in my youth when I was sort of twenty one. I used to run a sex shop here in Brighton, um, and therefore they thought I was some form of porn Baron. So I became the Baron, and my wife became uh, the Baroness. But when, when the Baroness uh, makes a coffee in the morning, which she normally does about half past ten. Uh, Finley gets, uh, he, you know, true, true dog Pavlovian style. He gets a treat and he insists on taking his treat from her and running through, opening the door and showing it to me and then making quite a bit of noise. So that's become part of the routine of the show. And, uh, we are, you know, we, we have great belief in that the podcasts is, uh, it's a bit like the old fanzines that you used to have in music and in, in football. We, we believe that it should be amateur. Uh, in nature, so we we never cut out the the racket he makes, and if and if the guy from Amazon walks up the drive, then Finley will start barking at him. So he has become part of the show to such an extent that when we did our first live show, um, there was more demand for Finley to appear in it than there was from myself and Kevin. So we had to bring him along to the gig, and he and he, and he was sat uh, sat on the stage with us whilst we we talked the usual nonsense. Well, I definitely think that's one of the things that podcasting has done in the last 15 or however many years it's been, is that I think it's replaced the familiarity people used to have with radio. Like we talked about John Peel. You know, certainly, you know, there are famous DJs here like Howard Stern, people like that. But, you know, a lot of the famous, I guess now we can also say infamous BBC DJs, Became famous, and it's a thing where when you listen to, uh, and like we mentioned them before, but like Danny Kelly and Danny Baker, you know, that you become so attached to people when you listen to them on radio the way you never would to people on television. And I think certainly podcasting has replaced that for people. And I think one of the reasons I think that your pod has been so successful is that you and Kevin are just two normal guys. And I think I think people can relate to that, even if you know, you know, you have an expertise in finance and all this, and Kevin is a comedian, and what have you. That you know, it is still just like you know, like they say, it's like listening to two guys in a pub for for you, or like you know, listening to the two guys at the game talking about stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons I think your pod's been so successful. Yeah, we, we've done quite a few live shows now, and the the nicest and also you know, by far the most humbling thing that we've got. Yeah, we we always talk to. Yeah, we always meet up with the audience afterwards and we go for a few beers and so on. Um, is the number of people who you know, we 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 don't. Yeah, we we always try to have a relationship. We try to re- respond to people on social media and so on. Um, was that people who have come up and said. During lockdown here in the UK, which was yeah for the best, it was on and off for eighteen months. Um, that we we were an outlet for them because we did we we got a very narrow range of jokes and and we repeat them ad nauseum and I think actually that's quite comforting in a way. Um, the number of people that said we'd effectively became extended family and they were the, you know what they were one of the things that they really looked forward to during COVID and and 
yes, it's a horrible thing to say. COVID, to a certain extent, made the podcast because there was nothing else to do. So, so listening to these two old blokes rambling on and we will always start with a list of topics. But as you know yourself, Mark, from listening to the show, um, we do go off at tangents and uh, we do. Sh- yeah, we're, we're both the same age. We're both from um, yeah, our our. Uh, 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 we're from Irish migrant families, to, effectively, and we came, we both grew up in South London. So we actually found that we had quite a bit in common. Although on the face of it, yeah, there's myself, who's a uh, a teetotal nerd, uh, bloke that teaches accounting for a living. Yeah, you you can't get duller than that. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've you've got a a stand up comedian who's a, who's a fantastic writer and, and very very quick-witted in all aspects it, it shouldn't work but we actually found a degree of, of closeness and, and kevin and i have become you know, really good friends um as a result of the show and, and for me i was a huge fan of kevin so yeah I, first time i met him i was i was in fanboy mode because i remember him from match of the day um but the thing the reason why i asked the producer to, to get kevin to to, to co-host the show was that when my club Brighton we we nearly went out of business in the the mid 1990s um, and there was a genuine danger of of the club having to to, to be made bankrupt and we were, we were involved in all types of fundraising things and then Kevin Day who was yeah, a reasonably well known comedian in, in yeah, at the time um, he was a Crystal Palace fan so he hates Brighton of Albion Kevin came down and did a benefit gig to help raise money for our fight for survival. And I never forgot that. You know, and we, and we always talk about karma. So, you know, I, I always admired Kevin for doing that because he went into enemy territory. He helped raise money. Uh, he helped my club to exist. And I think that's indicative of the nature of the man. You know, he, he will put aside rivalries. He was perfectly entitled to say, yeah, I don't need to be connected to this nonsense. You know, good, good luck, but uh, nothing to do with me. But he didn't. He, 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 he turned up he, as, as he still he still moans that he's not being paid for his expenses from that gig. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's 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 generous of heart and he's generous of soul. Well, it's funny. I think I think I told the story when he was on the pod the first time that I knew him from. When he used to do the podcast with Mark Chapman, yeah, and Graham Pohl and Roy Meredith, like fifteen years ago, and then he, and then I knew him from doing the Whistleblowers podcast with Mark Webster, who I guess has sort of been like was as kind of like been his on and off partner over the years in comedy stuff, and then yes. you know through the magic of television or through the magic of the internet. I was able to start watching Match of the Day and Match of the Day Two here, you know. So then I knew I knew him from there. So I I like followed him from afar in bits and pieces from like I did not realize probably then you know all the comedy shows that we that he worked on, you know when he was on last time we talked about you know how I got how I got news for you and him working on eight out of ten cats because we had him on right after Sean Locke passed away uh, to talk about that and all this other stuff. So I sort of knew him in a various bunch of ways. So when you guys started the podcast, I was listening because it was like Kevin was doing it. I'm going to listen to Kevin's podcast. No offense. You're you're the straight man, you know? So, but yeah, it's, it works well. It's an odd couple. It's weird. It's an odd couple, but not an odd couple. If that makes any sense. You know that you're right. different. You're different, but alike, and I think that's what makes it work. Yeah, and I, I was saying, saying earlier, you know, we, if you put people together, that they might, on on the face of things, have nothing in common. But when you scratch beneath the surface, what what holds us together as a society and as a community uh, are those common links, and, and ultimately, we all, we all want the same thing you know we all want to be happy we all want our kids to grow up in a caring environment we all want our mum and dad to live a, a happy retirement and so on and uh it's just the way we go about it sometimes differs and it's funny i was talking to kevin about what we were going to talk about on his part of the pod because the last time we'd spent a lot of time talking about 70s british television which i love and especially now that a lot of it's on 
You know, growing up, there was only certain British television that we got to see, sort of, you know, the A-level shows that got exported, like, you know, Python and Faulty Towers and things like that, and then the spy shows like The Avengers and things like that. But it wasn't until, like, everything's available on YouTube now that I started seeing all these shows that I had only heard, tangentially heard about, like all these shows, British shows that apparently were the basis for American comedies, like Man About the House, which was made here as Three's Company, and Seven of Four Hauser, which became All in the Family, which is certainly, you know, like one of the most famous shows in American television. And then all these other weird shows that I had never, you know, like all the famous British comedies that came over here, I don't think I ever saw it on PBS. Like, I never saw Dad's Army until I started being able to watch it on YouTube. And then I find out that that's, like, you know, one of the biggest shows in in British comedy that, like, we never got here because sort of the nature of the show. And then you started getting things like, you know, It's Not Hot Here, Mom, which would probably never have been shown in the States, as you might imagine. <laughs> you know, yeah. but then but then Kevin dropped in one day. You guys were talking a month or two ago about how much Kevin loved World of Sport. And, like, I've been, like I'm a big wrestling historian, too. That's one of my other nerd things. And I was like... I'm like, Kevin, we finally found what we're going to talk about next time. Cool. So so that's a tease for when we do Kevin's half of the podcast or Kevin's episode. However you want to talk about it, we'll talk about Big Big Daddy and Adrian Street and Cat Weasel and probably some other things in comedy. So, Kieran, thanks again. Please take care of Finley for me. Uh, we'll look for Kevin's part of this episode, and we will see everybody next time. <laughs>